Hey JT, have you seen Benedict? No, I, I haven't. Alan is missing as well. I guess that's just a result of this being episode 404. BSD now, host not found. So for this episode, we are going to do something a little different. Um, we're going to change it up a little bit. Alan and Benedict got the week off. They got to kick back and relax a little. Um, so I have two friends that have come on with me. One is Jeff. He is a co-host with me on another show I do called The Opinion Dominion. And another friend of mine, Ash, who I have known for a long time. Ash is big in the BSD space. He's a good guy. He's a member of Charmbug. We have a lot of fun together. So I figured let's get let's get these two guys on because Jeff is a Linux guy. Ash is BSD guy. And go over some things that have come up this past week and the past month and have a conversation. One of the things that's different about Opinion Dominion is that we don't necessarily go over news stories line item. Is we pick something, a good topic, we discuss it, we have a conversation about it, we all then leave with a new perspective on that topic, having heard that from other people. So we're going to we're gonna start with that, because there's been one issue that has kind of been coming up a lot. There's been a few occurrences in the past where this has definitely been a big issue and people have talked about it, but it's something that seems to be an existing problem in open source in general, and that is the, the difference between centralized and decentralized management of projects. And we see this across a ton of projects. Singular leadership and the problems that it brings. Now it can have benefits, but it can also have problems. And so the first thing that kind of comes to mind, the most obvious example that I can think of of recent um, newsworthiness is Stallman and the SFS. Because of the cult of personality that's around him and because of the opinions that people, strong opinions that people have both for and against, it just kind of highlighted the issue. You know, when you have one person in charge it, and there's that cult of personality, it does tend to lead to kind of idolization of that person, which is, of course, a big problem because we're all human. We all have faults. We all get stuff wrong. And when you have one person that's running a project and that person fails, well, unfortunately, sometimes they kind of take the project down with them. The second is I think there's kind of something inherent about the type of person that it takes to kind of blaze a trail and start a movement. They're obstinate. They're unwavering. They're singularly focused on a goal. And that's usually what it takes to then kind of start motion in a direction. The attributes that make you kind of a great innovator and great at pushing boundaries to force change, well, they're great at that, but then they don't do well at all when things are in the normal times, when you have norm just normal things going on. And I will put a link in the show note about a thread that was in the Fedora project about this, saying, you know, Stallman was the past, we need to build the future. But I don't think this is a Stallman issue. I want to be clear about that. This is its core, at its core, about how projects are run and managed. Um, before before the show started, Ash and I were, were chatting back and forth. And I mentioned that I think this is kind of the same reason that you have some people that are great innovators and great at starting companies. But then, but then they're not really good at managing the companies at that point on. They're really good at coming up with an idea and kind of pushing the boundaries. But then extending that outward they don't really do they're not attuned to being able to do that like day-to-day -day operations there's a notion that every nascent project um, has an unreasonable person at its root someone to nurture it and protect it and introduce it to the world and beat uh, beat the idea home that it exists and it can do work however i think uh Companies go through this process as well as they transition from family environments to corporate environments. And the maturity to do that is difficult to attain. It's hard won. And sometimes you have to let, uh, you know, a personal, uh, personal ideals go when you do that, when it, it has to become 
a wider uh, a wider environment. It has to be inclusive enough so that other people can play in your sandbox, and that means uh, developing um, that means developing a code of conduct and common rules to play. Jeff, I forgot what I was going to say. I got to cut that. I had to. It's a good okay. thing. It's a good thing this is audio, and I can cut things yeah, out. Yeah. So it sounds like we're all smart and on top of things. Well, you well, might just leave this in because it's hilarious. Now, I, I started thinking about what Ash was saying. I was like, oh, that's really good, and then I forgot what I was going to say. But uh, I remember now. So I've run across people that that couldn't run a company to save their lives. They had really great ideas. And there's some degree of very strong e- egoism there. The belief that I am good enough at this thing that I think I can do. That it deserves one, it deserves me starting something, a movement, a, a company, a, a new project, something. And two, that others will want to follow me in this thing. And usually there's several periods early on in a company or a project's life where there's some big challenges that they have to overcome. And that ego plays an enormous role in believing that you can do it. Because there's a you know, decision of do I fold or do I keep going? Do I double down? Do I triple down? And the ego driven people, oftentimes they'll keep going. Sometimes to their detriment, you know, I know someone whose whose company died years ago and has just been keeping it alive on the slab for a long time because he couldn't let it go. But the, the ego has got to be there to drive that forward. I think identifying the su- success stories uh, allows us to appreciate how hard that is. Um, mm-hmm. In certain organizations, BSDs are one where there is very common to see a core group that is democratically elected. I'm, I'm identifying the FreeBSD uh, Foundation and its participation. Um, also, the way the Risk Five, uh, Risk Five uh, collaboration is moving forward, it's identified people who have interest and it's bringing them together to uh, register their ability to invest, and then helping them do that in a way that's considerate of everybody in the community. The other thing that comes to mind is when you have a single person who is steering the ship, so to speak, they can only conceptualize and wrap their brain around a limited problem space because, of course, they've only got their own brain to deal with. Where when you have more people involved, more people that are looking at things from a different aspect, taking input from different areas, it allows the problem space to be much more well understood. And for the group to then realize other things that one person didn't notice and then have consensus on the best way to react to, to resolve, to improve upon. That's right. Or to adjust accordingly. Mm-hmm. It's one of those where the, 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 the total whole, and everybody's looking at, um, everybody's got their own focus maybe. And what the problem is when you get a lot of people in the, in the room that all have like the, the same exact focus and they can't tell that there's other foci outside that they should be paying attention to. Those are the organizations that don't make it. So I think in this respect, the open source community has a leg up because naturally people are coming from all over the place. Whereas when you're building a company, you may try and pick these people very carefully and they're going to end up being probably going to end up being close to you, similar to you, people that you think have the right skills and you get along with the best, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I've never started a partnership company before, so I don't actually know how the process goes. It goes along with the company tenants that people choose. You know, in, a, in an organization like Uber, it's always be busting a move and breaking stuff and moving fast versus a company like something like Oxide, where one of their core uh, tenants is empathy. So that let, that is a core tenant that is about inclusion and about understanding your customer, understanding your developer space, and being able to serve those needs. How does a project, or let me rephrase that, a lot of projects start because of one person that has an opinion or a preference or a belief or whatever and 
they're the ones that put all the effort into pushing forward. And then they collect people around them. Other people want to get involved. Now, obviously, when that happens, there's a lot of resistance from that one person to then allow other people to run the sandbox because it's it's kind of their sandbox and they kind of have a very personal ownership over it. But yet we have seen projects where they have been able to transition from just a small one or two people to a larger group. Do you think there are certain things that enable some projects to do that successfully and other projects not? I think it takes a tragedy. And I think it takes a tragedy that is recoverable early on in the project to teach this lesson. So in uh, the news this week, we've had uh, public tragedies where uh, people have made divisive decisions uh, with 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 Richard Stallman, uh, with uh, with some of the Rails core. Um, now the question is: Is this the time where those uh, those organizations learn this wisdom? I also think uh, certain people have no problem, or, or don't have. Um, let me rephrase it. Some people come in knowing that eventually it's going to get big enough that they're going to need help. That they're going to need to, to spread this out. Do you think the person who originally decided Mosaic was on a good enough browser, I'm going to go and make Netscape. Was it one person, do you think? Was it, was it a company that decided this is something we need to do? Surely at that point, it started Netscape. The, okay, let me ask this. Do you remember if Netscape, the company, came first or if Netscape, the browser, came first? Does remember? I don't recall. Uh, I believe Netscape was an outgrowth of ISC. I think that sounds right. So in that case, that would have been started kind of uh, as a committee decision. So right from the beginning, that would have been a committee thing and not... Although uh, every project, I think, at the, at the, especially in the early stages, there's the, there's the one individual that's driving. And there's some projects that start off with that one individual knowing at some point this is going to get big enough that I need to step back. Like uh, Guido Van Rossen from Python, he's been the benevolent dictator for life until recently of the Python project forever. He didn't really want it. I think he was happy to just kind of be around, but people were like, nope, you're at front. And he's like, okay, that's fine. But he came, I don't know if he came in knowing this is going to happen, but as it got bigger, he recognized I, I can't manage all this. So he actually handed a lot of the day-to-day -day operation of the Python ecosystem off to other people. So he could kind of focus more on language development. I think it is worth noting that, uh, that sort of life cycle had it, uh, had its own tragedy oh, okay. when the two, when the two X system was end of life, uh, that orphaned a lot of software. We're mm -hmm. still recovering that on, on the BSDs because a uh, large Python was fantastic. It permitted a uh, syntax, compact, accessible scripting environment, and it got pulled into build systems and it got calcified into the infrastructure. Uh, it's going to be a while before we get our Chromium ports uh, clean of all the Python 2.7. I would say that the, the, the tragedy you're referencing, though, is of recent make. And Python's been around for 20-some-odd years, hasn't it? Well, the deorbiting so, of uh, official desupporting of the 2x line instead of... And then, so 2x and 3x are incompatible in a way that isn't resolvable without uh, invasive, sort of an invasive recoding of those libraries. So things are getting left behind, and the projects that don't have critical mass aren't going to make it over that hurdle. So an example of this, uh, a tool I use all the time, I've been writing my documentation in restructured text for about 12 years now. It just seems to work for me very well. And I, one of the things I use the most is the restructured text to PDF tool, which was a 2.7 only tool for a long time, up until about eight months ago. And I was very frustrated because I had to continue using 2.7 for this one tool that I use literally all the time. 
and I was I was intending to get involved in the project and say, okay, what do you guys need to help get this up to three? Because I, I don't want to be maintaining this. Finally, I don't know who it is that did it. Someone finally got all the patches in, and now it's it's fine on all threes. I would like to go back and interview that person and figure out what was the process like. Since I've been pretty intimately using that software for a while, it would might make it for an interesting discussion on that. Yeah, I'm still hearing about projects that have some core dependency on two. And they're just like, well, we're just not going to update. And it's like, no, that's not a solution. You're just digging yourself deeper and deeper and deeper by not biting the bullet now. I mean, you've already got technical debt. You're now doubling down on that technical debt. It is not going to get better. It's yeoman's work. And if you can fix a package, hopefully you can find that maintainer and to send that pull request to. And hopefully they're still active. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. There's a lot of softwares that have been abandoned, actually, because they just the guy who the person who was doing it didn't want to make the migration to three. Just they they walked away from it. So at that point, it's it's not that. Um, I guess you would call that abandonware. I think a lot of software has suffered that fate due to the two three, and okay. uh, I, I suppose Node is going through that process as well. It's moving fast and breaking stuff. And uh, there was a recently an XKCD article about. Uh, there's a there's a piece of a software not maintained by some guy in Ohio that 13,000 other dependencies need, and no one's touched it in three years. Um, I submitted a PR for Graphics Magic uh, two months ago for uh, the ability to process invalid PDFs, and no one's going to touch that. Guys moved on, so I'm I've PR'd into the void. Yeah, and that also brings up another another situation that happened recently, which is. When you have a bunch of projects that are relying on something else, uh, there was an issue that happened in the Rails uh, ecosystem where there was one small thing that some guy was working on that everything, a ton of other projects were relying on. And because he improperly imported in something that was GPL, he was notified. And he then changed the license of his package from MIT to GPL, which then every MIT and BSD project that had previously been using that then couldn't because, oh, well, we can't ingest that and then have that bit compiled into our stuff. And it broke a ton of things. I think Rails, uh, I think Rails architected foot guns immediately <laughs> because of its, the way they stack components and the way they use uh, the decorators to render things. It's being inclusive uh, with their development community is tough because they architected that framework to be elegant to the architects. Sometimes at the cost of performance, though. Yeah. Um, so back on the the management issue. In the BSDs, it seems that it's kind of split. Uh, FreeBSD and NetBSD have kind of committees that, that make decisions. That are. I know that um, FreeBSD is definitely elected. I'm, I'm assuming NetBSD has a similar electoral process of some kind for how they uh, get their spots. Um if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will will write in and correct me on that. Um, but Almost certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll de I'll definitely be told. I know it. Right into the BSD show, though. <laughs> um, whereas Dragonfly and OpenBSD are pretty much led by a single individual. Now, there's obviously people that work with them on the projects, but I'm just curious, Ash, if if do you think there's is there any reason why that is the case? I don't wish a tragedy on any any project, but I think there's that story of it's worked so well for you know Theo and Matt to do it their way, and they're such talented engineers, and they've attracted some amazing uh, some amazing following. 
um, like studying Hammer as a file system teaches a, teaches us wonderful things. Uh, the fact that SSH is the juggernaut it is now for remote access, uh, and all of the intermediate fixes that OpenBSD has given us, uh, we should be delighted about their success. But they they haven't had that moment where they need to grow into a from a family into a corporation yet. They haven't had that moment where they needed a sounding board. They've they've had the same ideas and it's worked for them. Their code of conduct has been initially kind of you know their the way they would interact with their development community was shrill. Versus uh, you know in FreeBSD we've got. Uh, we've got a, a an entire group of people to, like who can teach you how to write documentation, who can teach you what it what it means to write in the kernel. Quietly, I hope that OpenBSD doesn't change, even though it's maybe not the healthiest approach for the people that are in that orbit. But like the, the examples you've cited, these tools and products that are coming out of it, it's hard to deny the quality and the focus. You know, uh, SSH as as a product. I mean, there's a lot of the things that we do today weren't i think originally in the ssh thesis shall we say it was originally it was just a we want a secure telnet is my understanding but we have uh, control channels we have uh the ability to open open one ssh connection through another using a tunnel there's 256 channels in an ssh connection all these things were planned ahead by someone thinking ahead and going we're going to need this someday let's go ahead and do this now that takes foresight and really high quality engineering and i want that for all the tools that we use everywhere not all of them are done like that, but the things that come out of the OpenBSD community that have crossed over widely seem very, very well engineered. And so quietly, I'm hoping it doesn't change. I guess I'm selfish like that. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's a direct correlation that project leadership would mean a drop in quality of code. Because you can have very widely led projects that are still able to produce very good code. I mean, okay, I know this is going to trigger a lot of people, so that's exactly why I'm going to say this. But, you know, if you look at the, you know, the Red Hat Fedora ecosystem, the leadership organization for specifically for Fedora is enormously wide. And like within each one of those segments, that then breaks down into teams that work on separate things. And yet you still get really good quality code. Now, I know people hate System D. Well, you know, it's with us. Deal with it. Now I'm triggered. Thanks. <laughs> We're just going to assign that to the downtime cause to System D and knock it right out of the segment, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can we can maybe throw some static in and be like, oh, we lost a connection there. Oh, no. Um, but there's a lot of other things that have that have come out of the project. I mean, you know, audio has been an absolute nightmare on Linux for a very, very long time. Um, Jeff and I have talked about that before. You know, well, Fedora has worked really hard, and they've now included Pipewire, which is trying to replace Pulse and all the chaos that Pulse brings, which we all love, know, and love all that all that Pulse audio chaos, um, and 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 simplify it down to not as insane as this. Like, it's still going to be a little complicated, but it's just not insanity level. I'm going to inject a little bit of my background here. I was an audio engineer chief engineer of the radio station in college and the notion of having a patch bay is infinitely useful unfortunately on bsd now that we inherit all of the linux audio technologies we have multiple patch bays we've got our internal snd kernel driver we have jack we have pulse audio and then you stack something like enlightenment sound demon on top of it 
and you're not sure where your audio is being routed without uh, the ability to debug it. I just saw a um, talk that the Pipewire developer gave yesterday during the Fedora 34 release where he was, you know, kind of explaining how he did things and stuff. And he opened up a program. I don't know if it was someone that he wrote, but where it actually had a graphical breakdown of all the devices and little lines between them, like it was a patch board and you could just connect and disconnect. And I was like, okay, that's nice. I like that. I hope that actually continues development. So, you know, the pros have got this stuff um, with Lightpipe and Dante uh, audio transport on Ethernet. Look, this is exactly how uh, consoles connect to their stage rigs now is on, on 10 gig fiber. They're no longer using like DAT or, or the other... Well, Lightpipe was... Uh, Lightpipe is just AES on, on, on optical. It's just, it's just 16 or 64 channels of AES uh, EBU on, on optical format. Okay. Did not know that. I'm a little behind in that. I stay with the uh, low-level prosumers grade stuff, so I don't have any visibility into this. This is neat. You've given me things to Google. No, God, please. You're on topic. Let's be on topic. I'm not very good at that. Yeah, one of the things that happens on, on Jeff and I's show is we, we end up rambling into the weeds all the time, which is fine. It, it's a natural just progression of a discussion to go places, but we always we always bring it back, and that's what I'm actually going to do right now is, you know, so you can get high-quality software out of a project that has diverse leadership. I think that requires, though, the people who are at the top, so to speak, being willing to delegate out the things that need to be done to other people instead of, again, just one person trying to control everything. And I think there's a benefit when that does happen, when a, when a project can reach that size and can successfully do that, because you then benefit from specialization in all those separate areas, and you get people who are better tuned to those issues that that team is going to face to then deal with those things. Maybe let's treat the beneficent dictator for life uh, archetype. At what point does that job become the worst job in the world? It's like, it's like being president of the world, keeping track of, uh, keeping track of so many people's uh, well-being and making decisions that are that big is tough without uh, a good sounding board. Without a good, without good feedback that your ideas are going to be helpful, and not capricious, I think that that would be a tough thing to do for very long. I think it would beat the, beat the hell out of you. I think every leader has people behind them, right? Though there's no in a national setting, let's say, or go back a couple hundred years, and you had kings. There were always advisors, and I think in a project that gets started from one person and gains steam, there will be advisors that show up. I think we talked to JT a while back in one of our episodes about community liaisons. Obviously, we don't want the ones that kind of self-assert that they're the community liaison and try to take over power or anything, but they're those people. You cited a, a gentleman named Rod and how helpful he was. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. I don't know how that project was, was governed, but I think in most, most projects where there is a benevolent dictator for life, there are people next to him or her helping that, don't, that probably want the spotlight to be on that person and they don't want the spotlight. Yeah, I think the the point is, or at least the, the point that my brain goes to, is that it, it greatly depends on the size of the project itself. When when something is small, it, it's easy for one person to you know, kind of wrangle all the things. You know, it, I don't think it really necessarily depends on user base size. Um, I mean, you know, Slackware is still run by Pat. He's, he's managed after all these years to still be the, the BDFL. 
and he's successful at it. Um, but the Slackware project as a whole isn't enormously large. So it's still within that realm of possibility, and the the problem space that he's addressing is is limited in scope. So he, he knows what he's doing, he knows what he needs to get done. Whereas with other projects, like for instance, if we take the FreeBSD project, the number of things that they are trying to accomplish with every release and with the OS is extraordinarily vast. You know, on the Linux side, Pat only has to deal with okay, let me bundle this together so it's usable and it, it, it fits the design motif and the engineering motif that Slackware has. Whereas on the FreeBSD side, whoa, they've got to manage the kernel. Oh yeah, they've got to manage the user land as well. Oh yeah, they've got to manage the, the corporate companies that, that sponsor them because they build their appliances on FreeBSD and need to make sure that certain parts of the OS work and have no problems. So like, that's a much bigger scope and there's a lot of moving pieces there that one person just can't manage on their own. Uh, Jeff, your point about having an advisor, um, I think uh, Slackware has been uh, sort of thematically consistent since its, since its beginnings in the 90s. I think it's attracted its own flavor of advisors that have helped it guide it in that same direction. And yes, it works, it works for some organizations, but it's not... It doesn't encourage the same sort of inclusive uh, community that you might want to get a junior Unix weenie trained up. I agree 100%. I think there's a, going back to the analogy of, of Kings, it was a degree of infighting to be that advisor, perhaps. And you, you, were, you were knocking other people off the pile to get up that high. And a financial, and a financial, uh, financial benefit. Mm -hmm. You can sell your investments pretty good if you, if you are the advisor to the king. That's true. That's not what we want. And an open source project. So I would, I would think, I would hope, first of all, monetizing an open source project is often difficult. So whatever monetization there is to be had, you would hope would go towards a, it's not a foundation if there is a BDFL. Like Pat, for a long time, tried to live just on Slackware consulting. And I don't know how successful he was on that, but he actually made life choices because this is what he was going to do no matter what. He was going to live off of the money he could make consulting for Slackware and Linux. And uh, there were some lean years in there for him, I think because of the choice he made. So monetizing these projects, that, that doesn't really translate, but there's other ways to project the, the money aspect, like a social prominence, perhaps. I am a, an advisor on the pick a large project. There's some prestige in the open source community for that. You go to, you go to con conferences and you're talked about, or, or you introduce yourself as, yeah, I'm part of this project and you're important. So there's not a direct financial benefit, but there are other other measurable benefits perhaps that could make an analog i think there are there are projects that have different levels of gatekeeping uh, certainly um you need to be the corporate sponsor for x uh to get yourself a spot at you know uh well, let's just say black hat right you're not going to be speaking at black hat unless you have uh you're part of that inner sphere versus you know the open BS, uh, open ZFS, open ZFS conference. Uh, your 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 ticket to entry is cheap. Your ideas are 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 entertained publicly uh, for at a low bar. You don't need to be, uh, you don't need to be a storage magnate to walk into the room. You just need to uh, commit the sweat. The other thing on the advisor uh, kind of angle is that when. You have a, you know, a, a BDFL, and you have someone who then tries to be an advisor. We're, we've just approached this from the point that 
you know, they're, they're doing it altruistically. And we, we did start to touch on the, you know, historically the monetary benefit that comes, uh, or currently the kind of the social, uh, status that comes from doing that. When you have a, a team of people, well, more eyes are going to be able to pick out people with malicious intent that are getting into a project for self-serving reasons or for some malicious intent instead of actually wanting to promote the project or wanting the project itself to be able to grow and to get better. Um, again, with just one person, that person is limited to only what they perceive and more people can see more things. Let's dig in there for a minute. We are not computer professionals because of altruism exactly. However, it's not a zero-sum game. Um, we like to get paid, and working on, working on the BSDs, working on open source licenses, helps other people get paid too. It is a net, it is a synergistic net win if we all work together. And this is, this has resulted in some sort of hurt feelings over the specifics of the licensing. How are you allowed to monetize this investment that someone else made? Um, we have, uh, certainly, an, ent an entirely dogmatic response is polarizing because you can't say one license suits everybody. And uh, yeah, here is where um, there are BSD zealots and GPL zealots, and getting them in the same room is dangerous. You have to sort of get behind a chair. Combustible. Yeah. So being uh, this is this is different than being a professional who's got a job to get done and is free to use the tools that best matches that need. And again, y'all are professionals. The way we can tell is we pay ya. I still don't feel like professionals sometimes. Yeah, you guys are, you guys are getting paid? What? <laughs> That's what I was waiting for there, JT. Oh, can I uh can I slug my uh uh my uh, a pitch for my Clara articles? I'm doing some writing for Clara. Yeah, absolutely. Um last month I I wrote an a, an article for D-Raid. So this is the new OpenZFS uh, feature for many, many spindles in an array. So if you have more than like, I don't know, 30 or 40 spindles, uh, you might spend a long time recalculating uh, recalculating parity after a, maybe a, a RAID Z3 failure. So DRAID accomplishes very high rebuild rates and virtual spares. So you don't have a lazy spindle in your array doing nothing and getting cold while its neighbors are being beaten. So it keeps all the disks hot, and it keeps uh, enough redundant free capacity on every disk to provide a distributed pair. Read all about it in my article. That sounds fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, it's available. It's available on. It will be uh, tracking OpenZFS 2.1. It broke my heart that it didn't make FreeBSD 13, but it's easily added, and it's also on OpenZFS current on Linux. I'm having to resist the effort or the desire to ask you how it all works. Because imagine your article goes goes into it, doesn't it? Uh, it does. So I don't do the the pictures about it. So, but I do link all of my uh, study material. That's cool. It, it it really only takes a couple minutes to set it up in virtualization. Yeah, that'll be interesting to check out. So, Jeff, what uh, what amazing articles have you written recently? Recently, none. Yeah. Well, we had a an aborted attempt to record an episode where we both decided we needed to make a video of it instead. So I've been setting up to do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Well, I didn't. I've been trying to work towards that. So that's going to be the next uh, publication of mine. And then I don't know if you would count our broadcast coming up on self as a publication. I guess you might, but, uh, 
Oh, that one, we don't have to prepare much for that. And mostly the preparation is, do you have enough hardware and, and interesting software to install? So. Yeah, that, that'll just be a, you know, I'll do it and I'll do it live. <laughs> but you already do, though. Sort I of. mean, you just, released, you just released a video of an install of early version Red Hat, Red Hat 1.0, right? Yeah, uh, that went out uh, this past week. Well, actually, no, because of when this is going to go out. I did that uh, the last week in April. Um, because this episode is going to be released in a few weeks. Um, where, yeah, I took a uh, version 1.1 of Red Hat and installed it on a 486 and realized all the things about the old Linuxes that I forgot and how gnarly it all used to be mm. and how nothing was simple or, in many cases, made any sense whatsoever. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> and how the installation will always fail at least once because so OpenBSD will forever have my heart for the most gatekeepery uh, installer ever because you had to edit your own fs tab with e with ed Ooh. to install the system Ooh. so beyond wow. uh calculating your cylinders and your blocks and your heads uh in your head or on a scratch pad if you were if you were a rich college student <laughs> you had to use ed because it did not have uh, an interactive console. It did not have a full interactive console on boot up. Wow. They thought, okay, well, you're going to be installing this on an alpha or whatever over a serial port. So you're not going to be able to up, have upline capability. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how to get this, this box online. Because as it turns out, I've completely forgotten how ifconfig used to work. Oh, yeah. Um, because as it turns out, 26 years of development, they've added a few new features few, here and there that actually make it useful. Um, and then when you go back to the really old one, it's, well, doesn't really do much. You still have to plumb interfaces, even though, if, even if you have a hardware driver there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hardware drivers loaded and the well, interface back is when like, you no, had I don't to exist. Pre-make your dev files. We don't yeah, have new dev back then, right? I had to, I was setting up an OpenBSD firewall oh, wow. and OpenBSD does not use dynamic, uh, dynamic device drivers. So I had to, I had to remember mm. how to plumb and, and make, make node and make dev. It's been a long time for me. I've done that in making like a ch root jail. That's different. That's just here, make another dev zero or something, but like actually going and digging it out and making the real thing. Ooh, gosh, that's been 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I finally did get the interface up, but then I realized, Oh wait, I have to manually build the route too, because <laughs> of course that's not automatic. It was not automatic in 1995. Nope. And yeah, I forgot how to do that. So that's another thing I need to relearn. Well, that's fun though. Save some of that for our upcoming broadcast. Yeah. We'll go into that on a on an opinion dominion show. Our watchers really um, enjoy watching us fail. Apparently, it was hilarious. They they do. They That's do. fine as long as it's entertaining. Uh, yeah. And speaking of OpenBSD, um, OpenBSD had a release recently. It is their fiftieth release. Mm -hmm. um, they have put out six point nine. Um, I am eagerly awaiting if there's going to be songs to go along with mm -hmm. it because I. Oh, there yep. is. Okay. The Terra Song Novas. Yep. I'm probably butchering how to say that, but my my coarse Texan tongue pronounces it that way. It's Latin. I think we can give you a break for a dead language. Oh, thanks. Well, no, he's from Texas, so we don't give him a break for, for that at all. <laughs> Quiet, you. Um, you spent and, your time here. Uh, unfortunately. You're tarnished by it, too. I'm, I'm glad that they are uh, improving support for PowerPC 64. That's good to see. Um, I am a big fan of open power. Speaking about Yeoman's work, they continually put laptop users first. I think they have a notion that 
their laptop users are first-class citizens. This is not the same uh, tone that other server-oriented uh, kind of uh, uh, catering goes. So they are... I love how they're looking at getting Apple's M1 as a tier one supported architecture. Yeah, has there been any movement on the M1s in FreeBSD that you know of? Uh, someone has it up in someone has it booting but crashing and no FDT and no devices. So I don't think it's multi-user yet. Okay. Uh, it also looks like they're improving their ARM64 support, which is nice to see. I know there was a lot of effort that went into that uh, for FreeBSD 13. Which uh, you, if you're a listener of the show, you've already heard because that episode that about FreeBSD 13 has already come out. And if you haven't heard it, well, you need to go back and listen to episode 400. Then. Click subscribe, like, buy. Do we have do we have merch? All those YouTube things that everyone ends with. Like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Click the notification bell. S- swipe right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bridge too far. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Only fans, but writing device drivers. Oh, wow. So I actually joked with Jeff, <laughs> this was probably a while ago, about, and I may, actually I may have mentioned this to you, that I wanted to set up a Chatterbait account and do live coding on Chatterbait and just mm-hmm. to see what would happen. And I'm like, okay, that could be really funny or that could not go over well at all. I think, I think a bunch of the, oh, yeah. the FPGA yeah. development, the open source FPGA development kids do this. I think they're on Twitch mostly. Really? Okay. It's like um, interactive, but not. Like if you don't like somebody and what they're saying, you can just kind of mute them, can't you? Or, or, or make it so you don't see what they're saying. Yeah, I've never used Twitch. It's opinionated um, pairs programming. It's interesting that the OpenBSD guys have uh, spent a lot of time on their virtualization as well. Lots of good networking stuff mm-hmm. in this release. I have an OpenBSD install somewhere in my house on what machine I don't know. And I also have no clue what version it is. So I need to find it and then do a do a fresh install. I would like to see uh, OpenBSD's PF and FreeBSD's PF grow closer. Um, they are they are orphaned forks for some time, and OpenBSD has done just a lavish job with the syntax and the capability of PF. And there are also a ton of just standard bug fixes and improvements mm-hmm. in this release. The um, release notes will be in the show notes, so you can check. Um, and then, of course, a ton of open SSH work as well. Looks like it's going to be a really good release. So definitely check that out. Not being as familiar with the numbering, the version numbering of OpenBSD, what would cause them to go from 6 dot something to 7? What's the criteria for that? Does, is that announced somewhere? Um, they've been on a six-month release schedule uh, for so long, I can't even remember um, but I think they save breaking changes for major... I think they they have a Semver system where they save breaking changes for major revisions. I think they got multiprocessor in like four. That seems like a good way to do it. Very straightforward. I've also got a couple links that I will throw in the show notes for the Beastie Bits section um, that I found about Dtrace. Um, unfortunately, one of them is paywalled by an industry journal, but hopefully it will become public soon. And it's about using... Dtrace for machine learning solutions in malware detection. And there's another article um, about process monitoring on sequences of system call count vectors, which was another security-focused one. I like how Dtrace is getting uh, getting attention on the Windows space because we've been using it. Uh, we've been using it on the Unix side for a long time with that same uh, with that same attention to, to uh, inspection. So George Neville Neal's excellent project, Cadets. Uh, monitors whole fleets of Unix boxes and looks for uh, 
program syscall generation, which is what that article was referencing. And then uh, on the Linux side, there's a new company called Optimize.cloud that is uh, doing this uh, in the cloud with Linux eBPF, which is the which is the dtrace language equivalent on the Linux side. Um, that is is targeting cloud resource utilization and sort of minimizing the carbon footprint of the data center. That is an interesting technology. Also, mm-hmm. also flame graphs, uh, beautiful, beautiful Very flame graphs too. everywhere. Just flame graphs shooting out of every like every cabinet. Yeah, and who doesn't love flame graphs? <laughs> the people where the flame graphs make them look really bad. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. What do you mean you're doing bite at a time? Though. <laughs> I will turn your entire program into one M map call. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. And uh, another thing that uh, Ash let me know about that I'm going to put in the show notes is uh, No Starch Press has a new book out, um, Practical IoT Hacking, and we'll have a link for that. Uh, <laughs> Practical IoT Hacking uh, by some guys, including I Am the Cavalry, who are some fantastic uh, security researchers that hang that I get to hang out with sometimes when they have me when they'll when they'll have me. Um, covers uh, attacking RF, which is all very interesting. It covers attacking hardware. And then it covers some of the more sort of familiar scripty access remote uh, remote vulnerability stuff, how to discover it, how to use it, some uh, learn some of the vocabulary. Uh, it is a very broad book, and I think it is an excellent, excellent place to go after you've run out of your CISSP textbook work. Did I trigger you? Uh, just a little bit, just a little bit, but that's okay. I, I'm sure I deserved it. Um, and speaking about security, uh, we have to mention our sponsor, Tarsnap, um, because Tarsnap is good for for securing your backups. Uh, Jeff, do you uh, do you know Colin Percival? I've heard the name. I don't think I know of know him directly. Uh, you don't. Uh, well, Ash and I know Colin. He's a good guy. So we're in the cool kids club. Jeff, you're not. Yeah, I'm Colin, at the kids' table, and I'm not leaving. Yeah, Colin Colin is a great guy. Um, for those of you that don't know Colin, I did an interview with him. I mean, all the listeners of this show should, but in case you don't, I did an interview with him on my Open Source Voices podcast, which I will link in the description as well, or in the show notes. Um, you should check it, out, check it out. He talks about how he first got involved and got interested in technology, um, all based on a calculator, as it turns out. But so Colin uh, created Tarsnap. Um, it is the backup service for Truly Paranoid. And it runs on, well, just about everything. There are clients for Windows, Linux, BSDs, Mac. Uh, the source is available, so you can always build it on whatever you want. Uh, if you want to compile it to run on a potato, go for it. I've been I've been meaning to try to build it on Haiku just because, but I just keep forgetting and haven't gotten around to it. Uh, Tarsnap is a secure backup solution and encrypts your data and also compresses the data and sends only the changes that it needs to to save bandwidth. And the best part is... The encryption and decryption is done on your system locally. It is not done in the cloud. So no one else has access except you, unless you give out your keys, which if you do that, you're an idiot, so don't be an idiot. I'm searching GitHub for your keys right now. Yeah, go for it. Uh, uh, so even if the $5 wrench brigade ever comes after Colin, uh, he will not be able to give them your data. Um, now, I don't, I don't have any state secrets these days. These days. Or do I? You know, you left uh, them all in some non-United States country. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, technically, if I if I did have state secrets, I would have to say I didn't have state secrets because that's how that works. Oh. So then that statement actually means nothing. 
Right. So let's just, you know, imagine a hypothetical situation and we'll use Schrodinger's air quotes here, which may or may not be around the word hypothetical, um, that if I did have state secrets that I could admit to, I would obviously want them to be secure. Uh, and I would I would want to secure them with a way that I know no one could ever possibly get access to them. And as a, you know, an American patriot, the, the biggest thing that I'm worried about these days is the inevitable invasion from Canada um, where they come down and try to take over. And Tarsnap will help me keep my secrets safe from Canada. And actually, I believe uh, Colin is Canadian. So even if he wanted to kind of help the fledgling Canadian empire, uh, he would be unable to give Canada my, my data, access to my data. So if you are worried about protecting your data from accidental deletion, drive failures, hackers, or even the Canadian empire, use Tarsnap. Solid company, nice guys, solid technology. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that is the weirdest Tarsnap ad that has ever existed. <laughs> and I'm sure Colin's going to get a message about it. And I mean, well, he's, he listens to the show, I believe. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to get an email about it going, seriously? Probably. How about, how about, let, let me, let me give you a little bit more if you, in case you need to put this together. Uh, defense in depth requires a lot of different strategies that interoperate. And with Tarsnap, you never surrender your key material. So the data that you commit to their cloud storage is as worthless as it, it could be. It is indistinguishable from Gaussian noise. Combined with, you know, best backup, you know, backup practices, snapshots, and, uh, and controlled retention, you can destroy the key and you effectively destroy the data. Yeah, and because of the compression that's used and you pay for transfer, um, the amount that you actually spend is extraordinarily low. Um, I put, I think, like $20 in a couple years ago, and I don't think I've used it up yet uh, because I'm using it for the very super important stuff that I cannot lose at any at any cost, any chance. Um, and I know it's secure. So yeah, if you've never heard of Tarsnap, check it out. Uh, the white paper is on the Tarsnap website. Source code is available. If you think that we're making this up, you can go in and check it yourself. It really is a great backup service. And unfortunately, we're going to end this on kind of a somber note. This past week, the security community lost someone. Dan Kaminsky passed away on April 23rd. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Dan was, he was kind of a legend. He discovered a flaw in DNS back in 2008, I think it was, 2008 or 2009. Um, and I remember when the news about it was going out, he had reached out to Paul Vixie. Paul had described the issue as... Everything in the universe is going to have to get patched. And and Dan was the one that found it and brought it to attention. And he reached out then to all the different major vendors and governments and helped get that resolved. Dan's loss is going to affect a lot of people personally and professionally. He has mentored many people's careers starting out in security technology. He has written many articles and books to uh, about DNS's internals, about security in general. Um, I was hanging out with Dan at one point at the back bar at 9.30, which he was, he, was, he was wont to do. He loved his music, and he loved his fun. He was, the next morning, about to sign the root keys for DNSSEC for the United States of America. This, guy, this guy's uh, passing will be felt. Yeah, and a lot of people focus on just the, the security stuff that he did, like you know his involvement in bringing to light the Sony root kit or you know, how to finger remote fingerprint systems that were infected with the conflict or virus um, and uh, the SSL flaws that he helped discover and fix. 
But he worked on a lot of things beyond just security. I mean, he worked on, you know, with different companies that dealt with uh, people that had colorblindness and people that had hearing issues. I mean, he really worked on a lot of things because he cared about helping people. And we all have, have lost a lost a champion, so to speak, with his passing. So I know it's a somber, somber note to end on, but I wanted to bring some attention to that because Dan really was really was a great person who did great things. But we're gonna we're gonna wrap this episode up. Uh, this was a little bit different than all the other BSD nows, which you know, that's it is what it is. My technical chops are, are less than Alan and Benedict's, and I didn't feel right kind of jumping in on some news stories that I think would be better left to them to dig into. So I figured just a conversation episode would be good. So that's what we did. Uh, if you liked this kind of style of discussion, check out the other show that I do, The Opinion Dominion, because this is kind of what we do. We take a topic and we talk about it and we have a conversation. Your host will return next week on BSD Now as usual. Please send in some emails for them to answer at feedback at bsdnow.tv. I love getting those emails in and then being able to give them to the guys so they can get answered on the show because it's one of the things that we like doing on BSD Now is to make it interactive. So thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. We will put a bolo out for Benedict and Alan. Yeah, yeah, we'll put a reward if found. <laughs>